Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Working is supported by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Teams can collaborate with MailChimp to design and track newsletters or just get work done easier. MailChimp. Send better email. Find out more at MailChimp.com. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm David Plotz. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Corey Stamper and I'm a lexicographer at Merriam-Webster. And what does lexicographer mean? I write dictionary definitions. And how long have you been a lexicographer? And can we just call you a definer because that is a word I'm not going to be able to pronounce over and over again? I've been a definer for 16 years now. And what's the training to be a definer? It's all in-house. There are only a couple of requirements to be an editor. One is that you have to be a native speaker of English. One is that you have to have an accredited college degree um, in anything. doesn't have to be linguistics. Then you get hired and you go through months of what we call style and defining classes. So you start with reading through the front matter of our biggest dictionary, which is the Webster's Third New International Dictionary, unabridged. That front matter is 45 pages of four-point type. You take notes on it, and then as you're doing that, you practice writing dictionary definitions. And the way that we do that is you get a batch of what we call citations, which are pieces of a word in context. So they're taken from various sources. You read through them, and then using that context, you start drafting definitions. And then senior editors who are giving you these classes will critique them. And so that goes on for, well, it depends, two to four months maybe. So talk us through the process of actually defining a word. Pick a word that you want to define or that you've been assigned. Tell us even how you get assigned it and then how you go through the process of, of giving us a definition. Okay. There's two parts to this. The first is sort of the pre-work that is done before you start defining, and that is what we call reading and marking. So every editor at the company spends an hour or two a day reading. We read everything. We read books, magazines, blogs. I've read and marked beer bottles and cereal boxes. Other people have read and marked the yellow pages, dance programs, all sorts of stuff. What you're doing when you read and mark is you're reading through and you're looking for words that catch your eye. Sometimes they're new. Sometimes they're old. Uh, Sometimes it's a new use of an old word. Sometimes it's a brand new word. What you do when you see it is you underline it and you bracket the context. And then that bit of context gets stuck into a database. So once you've done the citational work, let's say it's time to revise a dictionary. What we do is every dictionary is broken up into tiny chunks. It's usually one column, I believe, of a dictionary page and all of the words in that column. So we might have 5,000 batches in something like the Collegiate Dictionary. And we 
begin, and you sign out a batch. Now everything's online. So I open up the spreadsheet, and I look for the defining column. It's because when a batch is signed out, it's not just for defining. You know, Once I'm done with it, there's seven or eight different steps that it goes through. But when I get to it, let's say I'm going to uh, sign out the batch that is green to grow. Why have you signed that batch out? You go, you go by whatever batch is available next. And does it start at A? I mean, does it, do you work your way through it in alphabetical order? Is the batch is made available in some random order just so A doesn't get more attention or A isn't older? I mean, do you, do you, or is it just, just march through? So dictionary writers never start in A. You start in the middle of the alphabet, uh, usually on one of the smaller letters in the middle, so H or I or J. And the reason you do that is because A, B, C, and D are actually huge letters. They take up a fifth of of the book. Any dictionary you look at, A through D takes up a fifth of the book. So you start in a smaller letter because as it just takes practice, you have to be able to get into it. And you would much rather go in and revise the letter J, because that was the first letter you did, than to have to revise A all over again at the end of the process. So we start in the middle, you work to the end, and then you start at the beginning again. Okay, go back to signing out. You've signed out. Okay, I've signed out. In the olden days, when you would sign out a batch, that was a, that was a physical thing, and you would go to this huge bank of filing cabinets. And on top of all those filing cabinets are shoeboxes, essentially, that has all the new citations that we've collected since the last time we revised this dictionary for your alphabetical section. So I go find the box for green to grow. And then I go find the physical paper copy. What we do is you take that column, you triple space it, you put it on what we call galleys. So that in the olden days, you could actually make revisions on those galleys. I could shorten a definition, or I could add a definition. Now everything is electronic, but the idea is the same. I still sign out a batch that's green to grow. I get that file, which, how many words? Well, let's see. It really depends. I would say you're probably looking at, for the most part, 25 words, but it just depends. So then you get your file. That's your file. Uh, it it's, works pretty much like a word processing program, and it's sort of the same thing. You can insert and move things around. And now our citations are on, in this database. So let's say my first word is green. What I do is I open up the file, and I read through the existing entry for green. And then I pull all of my citations. Um, I'm either doing that physically, I take them out of the box, or I'm doing I'm loading them into a reading program. How many citations might there be for a word? Well, that depends on what the dictionary is. So I said I was working on the unabridged dictionary at this point, and uh, one of the words that I revised was the word God. And that had 16,000 citations in the file. The word God gets used a lot. Another word, uh, one of my first words that I defined was bodice ripper. Bodice ripper doesn't have many, you know, it doesn't have 16,000 citations. It's got, you know, maybe, I don't know, I might somewhere between 50 and 100 citations, something like that. Um, the more common the word, generally speaking, 
the fewer the citations because they don't catch your eye as much. So there are some times when you're reading and marking, certainly all of us do it, where, you know, I'm reading a blog post, let's say, and I'm marking along and I'll think, you know what, I'm going to mark every instance of the word for, just so that we've got evidence for for. So I underline every instance of for, I highlight it, and I send that in. But generally speaking, when you when you get to the simpler words, you actually have to go through, you have to search the database for words that have not specifically been marked. I might want every instance of four that we have, or every instance of four followed by uh, me or us or some kind of pronoun. So you start by reading. You're just sort of mentally piling things now. So I'll sort of click things and be like, okay, that goes there, and this goes to that goes to sense four, that goes to sense two, this is a new sense. And that that process sounds very straightforward, and it is often not as straightforward as you would think. There are some words that you think, well, this use could be a new emerging use of this word, or it could, if I use sense two and I tweak it a little bit, it could be covered under sense two. How many of you are reading and marking? All of us try and do it. So, you know, about 40 of us. But they're all, you're, you don't encompass the entire wondrous array that is American English language usage. It's also you're only looking at things that are written down. So there's all these things that people say, for example, that they aren't, they don't write down. How do you account for the huge variety of English that might not be in what you guys see in your telescope? You'd kind of be surprised. We certainly don't have the whole scope, and nobody does, because English moves faster than anyone's attempt to record it or catalog it. But we're all of us are really very conscious of trying to get a good array, a broad spectrum of things. And you'd be surprised, particularly in the Internet age, if someone says something in a TV interview, for instance— That gets reported in transcript reports. That might get quoted in a blog piece about something. People will quote things on Twitter, and suddenly I can pull a quote from Twitter if I need to. So it's it's this weird balancing act. We always are aware of there are senses, emerging meanings, specialized information that we know we're not getting. The one thing that's interesting is that, you know, people approach the dictionary and expect all the words that they know to be in that dictionary. And so people write in and say, hey, why don't you have, for instance, I live near Philly. John, which is a Philly term, J-A-W-N, means thing, is not in the dictionary. It's a regionalism. Nice, so I know. But now we're aware of it. So I can, you know, so I've read and marked plenty of Philly local blogs and Philly local things that use John. And so John's now in the database. It'll get evaluated. But it is a, it's a weird balancing act. We always are, you're aware that you're not getting everything and you wish there was a way that you could get it all. How do new words get in there that weren't in the column before? What gives them enough gravity to push itself in between green and grow? There are three criteria for entry. The first is a word has to have widespread use. Widespread use generally means we want it to have some kind of a significant national presence. And we're we're looking for things that are in in print, 
though we do try to take spoken word citations when we can, that's actually much more difficult than you'd think because it's very easy to mishear or miswrite what people are saying, especially with new words. If someone says a new word, like if someone says John and I don't tell you it's spelled J-A-W-N, everyone will write it J-O-N, J-O-H-N. So we're looking mostly for print. So widespread use, um, sustained use is a big deal. There are tons and tons of words that come into the language, see this huge spike in use for a year or maybe two, and then drop out. Or there are words that enter the language and take 100 years to catch on. And the third criteria that a word must have, and it sounds ridiculous, but we have to say it, is that a word has to have a meaning. Most words have meanings. Some words are just used as examples of long words and have no lexical meaning. I can't write a definition for them. So one question I always get is, why isn't anti-disestablishmentarianism in the dictionary? And I say, well, tell me what it means. Use it in a sentence. People will say, well, it's a long word. But that's not a meaning. If someone said he used anti-disestablishmentarianisms in his essay to impress his teacher, well, that means that it means long word. But there are very few words that don't have a meaning. Even filler words like uh and um you can lexicalize those. You can say those have a lexical meaning and they have lexical weight. This episode of Working is sponsored by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Teams can collaborate with MailChimp to design and track newsletters and just get work done easier. Plus, MailChimp distributes hats for cats and small dogs. You can find out more at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. Give us an example of a word and and tell us how you end up writing that definition. One word that immediately pops to mind is the the word take, which I defined for our collegiate dictionary. Um, It took me a month to get through it. So if I have a if I have a new sense of take, for instance, the first thing I need to do as I'm evaluating things, like I said, is I need to I need to say, okay, is this new use of take? really an extension of a current use. Like, can I just tweak a current definition and get it? So, for instance, let's say that I've got a bunch of citations for the witness takes the stand. Okay. I could say, all right, well, I do have a sense that means to assume or be awarded a position or he took the department chair position. Okay, is that close enough to taking the stand? Well, no, there's a slightly different connotation here. Or I might look and say, are there any other uses of take that this actually falls into? Am I being blinded by the subject? Am I being blinded by the construction? And after a while, once you decide it's entirely new, then comes sort of the mental crunch Everyone does it differently. What I do is I sit down with a legal pad and I use a pencil and I start drafting definitions. So take as in take the stand. I might start drafting a definition. Okay, I know it's a verb, so it always is going to start with two. So I will say take the stand. That sense of take means to be entered into court as a witness. Well... No, I'm going to read some more citations. No, because you can be 
entered into court as a witness without actually physically taking the stand. Take the stand generally refers to being physically present at the court. So I'll cross that out. And I write draft after draft after draft. And then when I get a good working draft, um, so let's say that this sense of take means to ascend to the witness stand in a court in order to give evidence. Let's say that's what that means. Then I take that draft definition and you weigh every single word. Ascend implies upward movement. Are all witness stands up? Maybe not. No. Okay. So I need to find a different word than ascend. So you, it really is this like taking your brain and wringing it out and you're shaking loose all of the extra words that are not going to stick. And that's the part of writing a definition that is brain twisting, exhausting. But you, you do the best you can. You sort of get it the shortest. You want concision and precision. And then once that's done, you write it on a separate piece of paper or you put it in a separate file. Because when I'm done with it, it then goes through three, four, five more levels of editing. Someone's going to read through the citations that I band together with that definition and say, oh, she got this wrong, or oh, no, this is pretty good. We might send it to someone on staff who has a law background so that they can say, oh, no, no, there's actually another legal term that we should use here instead. They're going to send it to the cross-reference people to make sure that every word I have used in that definition is also entered into the dictionary. Then we're going to send it to somebody who's going to make sure I haven't made any, you know, typos or, you know. So you spend all of this solitary time crafting a definition, but it's never actually your definition by the time it gets into a dictionary. It's been touched by almost every other person on staff. We all have multiple roles when a book comes out. And then when you're done, you stamp your name on it, you band that together with its group of citations, and you file that. And then you move on to the next new sense or new word. You know, it seems like lots of people think, oh, your job is reading all day. I would love that. Or your job is writing all day. I would love that. And there is a creative element to the writing, and the reading can be really enjoyable. But you're doing it at a level that is so like specialized and finely tuned that I go home at night from defining, and I am the most inarticulate slob. I need about 30 minutes to decompress before I can put a sentence together because I've just used up all my words. There are no more words left at the end of a day. You work at home, or maybe you work. You don't work wherever central office is. Does it have to be solitary? Could it be a collaborative effort? No. I, I take that back. You can, and I have often asked coworkers for help in helping me puzzle out parts of speech or saying, okay, I've written this definition. Does this even make sense? But it is primarily just you and the files. In fact, even in the main office, uh, the, the office upstairs where all of the editors work at Merriam-Webster is kind of this half-open office plan. We all have cubicles. There are a handful of editors who have their own offices, but not many. And until 1996, I believe, 
there was a formal rule of silence on the floor. There was to be no talking, no conversations could be had. We had two telephones for use. They were in private telephone booths on either end of the floor. If I wanted to, if I needed to talk to somebody, physically talk to them, I could go to their cubicle, I would drop down so that I was chair level with them, and I would talk in an undertone like this, and I would say, where do you think we're going to go to lunch today? I don't know. And even sometimes that would be too loud. You could hear someone, you know, someone in the next cubicle would, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So in those days, if you wanted to communicate with your fellow editors, you used the inter-office mail and you sent what we called pinks, which were pink index cards. We used them for notes in the files. If I found a typo, for instance, I would write it on a pink. I'd say, I found a typo at XYZ entry. Um, you write a pink. It's the editor's initials or the book initials. The in-house nomenclature we use goes in the top right-hand corner. The word that you're focusing on goes in the top left-hand corner, and then your note is central, and you stamp it. So if you are a social person, if you need social interaction every day, you will die in this job. It is very quiet. It is very, it's very alone. And people who love no interaction thrive. Like, they just love it. You could, if you really wanted to, go days or weeks without speaking to somebody. What is the metric by which you measure how good a definer you are? That's hard. I think one of the, one of the metrics is, and this is kind of a weird metric, but the, particularly for general definers, the longer you're there and the better you are, the more boring the words you get. One of my colleagues, who is a brilliant editor, uh, got the indefinite article A, and she found a new sense of A that had not been documented before. And it was a sense that when you would say, like, a triumphant Mrs. Smith returned home from the campaign trail. Well, that use of a triumphant Mrs. Smith is different than a Mrs. Smith returned home from the campaign trail. Previously, those two had been lumped together, and she is a good enough reader and editor that she was like, no, those have very subtle but very different meanings. There are a certain set of words that are very small that tend to be done by senior editors or older editors because they require a lot of that kind of very careful, close reading, pulling apart. Take is one of those words, do, go, run, set, get. So essentially, the smaller the word, the more difficult the word. Defining a word like uh, bodice ripper is, is really easy, actually. It might have one or two meanings, and it always has the same general form, and it's always used in the same sort of way. But a word like for or as, it's just in the air you breathe. It's in everything that you read. And so a good definer will be able to go through all of those citations. You know, if you want to be comprehensive and pull 50,000 citations from the database to read them, you can. When lexicographers get together, and we do occasionally, and we do have sort of 
awkward conversation together. That's sort of the measure of which, like, this person worked on run. Like, whoa. <laughs> this person worked on A. One of the words I worked on for the unabridged was the word God. And that was terrifying. I mean, it took me four months, I think, to do the entry. And so much of it was, okay, well, what do I lump together? What do I split apart? If I'm going to start splitting apart different meanings of God, can you ever really define God? God is a word that is used so, so vaguely in most writing. It's like, well, I can't, I don't know. Is God merciful all the time? Every use of this sense of God? I don't know. Is God omnipotent, omnipresent? I don't know. You have so much space that now you feel like, well, there's no reason to not subdivide all of these things or to not list every single possible use of the word take, the verb. But at the same time, there are plenty of words that once they get into the dictionary, it is really difficult to to remove them from a dictionary. You need to show that there's no significant historical use in the canon and that there's no current use for it depends. I mean, we, I tend to look back 50 years. You're always going to find some use in the last 50 years. So, so even though we've got lots of space, we still there's still this judgment call of, okay, this might still be emerging. This might still be regional. So is this the kind of job you can die in? You can do it for 60 years and then pass away while struggling with a new, a new sense of run? This is absolutely a job you can die in. At Merriam-Webster, we have, you know, 40-ish editors, and a good chunk of those are in what we call the 25 Club, which are people who have been there for 25 years and more. It's an interesting job because when you think of an industry, you might think of institutional memory, that some people have are the institutional memory for something. And in lexicography, it's it's much more creative in that it's it's craft. The people who have been doing it for 40 years have honed their craft to a point where they're, they're sort of luminaries in lexicography. The field of dictionary publishers has contracted pretty significantly over the 20 years, you know, over 20 years or so. And so good editors, there's always a call for good editors. And, and generally, the longer you do it, the better you get at it. I mean, I've been defining for 16 years. I really feel like it took me 10 years to feel like I had a grasp on it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. On the next show, I'm going to talk to Nina Kang, who is a software developer at Google. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.